Well, let me catch you up a bit if you're here uh, for a first time, if you will, or if you were not here even a week ago. We are in the midst of a sermon series that we have begun. We are looking at the letter to the church in Ephesus, and as we said a week ago, and to the church in Somerville as well. These letters speak so powerfully and richly to contemporary lives as well as lives of the first century. And a week ago, we spoke of what Jesus accomplished. And um, we built a foundation around um, a passage in Ephesians. And I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians this morning. And uh, you can, if you brought your iPod, iPad, smartphone, your own Bible, or if you want to use the red Bible that's in front of you, all those are options. Page 827 in the Bible that's in your pew pocket. And this is where we located ourselves a week ago, was in the second chapter of Paul, in the eighth verse, as Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. Martin Luther built upon that great principle and wisdom and brought to the 16th century Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Jesus Christ alone. We spoke of that free gift a week ago, and here we see it here. It is the gift of God, verse 8, not by works so that no one can boast. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And faith is the decision and the response to orient the whole of our lives around this truth. And Jesus Christ, we simply acknowledge His uniqueness and that He is not only an example of how to live, but He is also the substitute offering for our sins and the error of our ways. And He is the one who provides an enabling power, which we identify as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, as He is sometimes called. And so we move forward from there. After hearing what Christ has accomplished, this morning's topic is the aha moment. And this aha moment represents a transition and a movement from here to there. It's the doorway in the middle. And beyond this, in this sermon series, we will begin to look more carefully and clearly at the implications that follow after we have the aha moment or new aha moments in light of Jesus Christ that take us into a new community of faith. We'll get to that a bit this morning and more later. I may be speaking to many in here who know of the aha moment. And what I love about the aha moment is it is a doorway into many aha moments that follow after that. The aha moment of seeing. There's a wonderful poem written by Studdard Kennedy over a hundred years ago called My Peace I Give to You. It's taken from Jesus' words about that. And Studdard Kennedy wrote this in the first verse. He said, blessed are the eyes that see the things that you have seen. Blessed are the eyes 
that see the things you have seen. He's speaking of people, many of whom are sitting here, maybe all of you sitting here this morning, who have seen. And he's saying, you are so blessed. Blessed are the eyes that see the things that you have seen. Have seen that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Have seen that He is Savior. Have seen that it is a gift of God to us for salvation. Have seen it all. Blessed are the eyes that see the things that you have seen. Blessed are the feet that walked the ways where you have been. That's the feet of a disciple, of a friend of Jesus, who now walk in His paths in holy living, if you will, which is a life of love, of caring, compassion, and concern for those near you and those who are guests or strangers far from you, if you will, in terms of a relationship, but who have crossed your paths. We are the people of the blessed eyes, you see, who gather for worship on a Sunday morning to recall the great gift we have received, to be equipped for our task in the world in the name of Jesus. The aha moment. I'd like to share with you a story, one man's story, of his aha moment. It's a man I expect all of you know well here in this congregation. Uh, His name was C.S. Lewis. He wrote marvelous nonfiction as well as fiction. He is probably quoted more than anyone else by preachers from the pulpit, including me, over the years. And this is the story of a man who was an atheist who became a believer because he had an aha moment. He says this, speaking of his English roots in and around Oxford, I was going up Headington Hill on the top of a bus. You know those familiar double-decker buses that you see traveling around London, for example. Without words, and I think almost without images, A fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware, Lewis writes, that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. Or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being... Therefore, I'm sorry, I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corslet meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, But it was also strangely unemotional. And he says, I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I felt as if I were a man of snow at long last beginning to melt. The melting was starting in my back, drip, drip, and presently trickle, trickle. I rather disliked the feeling. And so he says that then I became a believer in God. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God 
and knelt and prayed. And he says, though, think of the aha moment that opens the way to aha moments. He said it must be understood that the conversion was only to theism, belief in a personal God. That's as far as he got in this story so far. Pure and simple, he says, it was not to Christianity. I knew nothing yet about the incarnation. The God to whom I surrendered was surely non-human. The story unfolds and it continues. And near the end of his book, Surprised by Joy, he then says, I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we, when we reached the zoo, I did. An aha moment in an automobile that brought him to the end of his journey and the beginning of his journey. From atheism to belief in a God to belief that Jesus Christ is authentic, true, and real as Lord and Savior. Blessed are the eyes that see the things that C.S. Lewis has seen and the feet, his feet, that have walked the ways where he has been. Blessed are your eyes when you have the aha moment. Let's look again at the letter to the Ephesians and what we heard read this morning by Valerie, the 11th verse. Because Paul, in these first couple of chapters, in a repetitive fashion, really has described what Jesus has done for us. Remember, it is by grace you have been saved through faith by Jesus Christ alone. And so verse 11 begins with one of Paul's very regular and repetitive words. Therefore, he loved to use that word as he comes to a conclusion. And it has been said through the years by some wise individual who said it first, it's always important to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? So let's do that. He's saying salvation by grace through faith by Jesus Christ. Therefore, well, he, he says, remember your former life. He says, in writing to Jews and Gentiles in this community in Ephesus in Turkey, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, call the uncircumcised by those who are called themselves the circumcision. Now those are significant code words because the uncircumcised was anyone who was not part of God's chosen people. And so they were essentially the accursed because they were not part of the circumcision. But Paul is very carefully qualifying matters here. Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth call the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men. He is laying groundwork and has already laid groundwork in his letters and in his preaching and teaching that uh, there are the uncircumcised 
There are the circumcised done in the body by the hands of men, and he will make clear that neither have a relevant place anymore because there is something new. But he's speaking right now to the unto the Gentiles. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. Didn't know anything about Messiah, an anointed one, a one who would come to save the world, separated from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were not a Jew. And you were not part of the Jewish family. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. The covenants familiar to all Jews. Covenants of being the chosen people. Covenants of God's protective care through the ages. The covenant of the promise that there would be one who would come one day, Messiah, to rescue and to deliver. But you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. So Paul's saying, you were without hope. Didn't have a chance in hell, if you will. Without hope and without God. Not that there weren't other gods to worship, but without the one God for your life. And what Paul likes almost as much as the word therefore is the word but. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, he could be speaking generally to Gentiles in general, or he might be speaking to your life or to mine, said, yes, I was a long, long, long ways away from my belief in God in Christ once. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near been brought in, incorporated, embraced through the blood of Christ. Not through the covenant of the law, not through the law of Moses, not through anything that is part of the Old Testament truth and law, but through something new. A new way has been made through the shed blood of Christ. He's very uh, explicit and very direct. He, writing himself a Jew, who now says there is something completely new for me and for you, and it is the cross, and a man whose life was offered on the cross, who gave his life so others might live, and who gave his life, and in giving his life, created something new. And so he simply builds on that good news in verse 14, for he himself, Jesus, you see, he himself is our peace. You have nothing to fear. You don't even need to fear death or fear anything this side of death because there is a peace available for your life and for mine. He himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, he has said, has been torn down and eliminated. And then look at the verse 15. The law is not... He says here, I'm sorry, verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments, not so much abolishing the law, but he's provided a new way for you and me to be keepers of the law. And it's not by trying harder any longer. It's not by being bound by oughts and shoulds. It's a new enabling way through Christ and a relationship with Jesus that provides an enabling power for our lives 
And so he says, um, the old way is no longer necessary. It is redundant. Here is something new. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. The Jews, mankind. Gentiles, mankind. There is a third item now on the table. A new kind of mankind. He said, and in this body, it's a new body, all will be reconciled to our Father in heaven. So he concludes for us here this morning in the 18th verse, through Christ Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit, something new available. Paul's heart's desire, and really every faithful follower of Jesus' heart's desire, is for others to have the aha moment that we have had. Because it means peace. It means life. It means belonging to a new community in which love is dominant. Joy is richly available. Laughter and intimacy and deep and abiding relationships are available in a new way. But now. I began these thoughts this morning thinking of C.S. Lewis. I want to end with a story of another man whom you probably have never heard of, nor had I except reading of him. Chinese, his name Lin Yutang. And I'd like to give a bit of his biographical background and then let him also tell his story of his aha moment. Because this man, born in China, was born to Christian parents, educated in Christian schools. And as a young adult, he renounced his Christian faith and he became a follower of Confucius, a Chinese spiritual leader. Lin Yutang studied at Harvard, studied in Germany, became an academician, professor of English at universities, a best-selling author, and um, mentions that in the 1930s, in a magazine article in which he was published, he headed one section, Why I Am a Pagan. He said in that article, Christian theology repelled him with its presumptuous arrogance that it could know and define God. And then, nearer to the end of his age, having moved to New York City, his wife, who attended a Presbyterian church one Sunday, persuaded him to accompany her. So that sets the stage. And he describes his before, the but now, and the after moment of his life. He says, for over 30 years... My only religion was humanism or the concept of the self-perfectibility of man through education. The belief that humanity is sufficient unto itself. 
that may be Confucius, but it is very present in our American culture as well today. Man is sufficient unto himself, might makes right, I can do it, I just need to try harder or get a better degree. But Lin Yutang made that journey for three decades and said, now, I now believe that mankind cannot survive without religion. That humanity is not and never has been sufficient unto itself. That for man's very survival, a religion of self-perfection is not religion enough. Man needs contact with a power outside himself that is greater than himself. I believe that Christianity, because of what Christ revealed, he writes, offers man incomparably the best way to God. He who was far off has come near, see. I have also been compelled to conclude, he writes, that as irreligion and materialism advance, this is written in the late 50s, and my goodness how irreligion and materialism has advanced further since then, he says, as it advances, his observation is that the spirit of man decays and weakens. For I have witnessed the doings of a nation living without God. He may have been speaking of China then. It concerns many of us now that we might more and more be a nation living without God. So, he says this humanism, the belief in human reason and in man's power, lifting himself by his own bootstraps to better himself and make a better world, such was the doctrine he followed of the 18th century rationalist Voltaire and others, the age of the Enlightenment. He said, the doctrine appealed to me for many years as sufficient. Then below the surface of my life, a disquiet born of both reflection and experience began to set in. And he says this, I'm afraid he writes about us as well today and may we repent of this. He says, man's increasing belief in himself as God did not seem to be making him more godlike, he was becoming more clever, but he had less and less of the sober, uplifting humility of one who has stood in the presence of God. Much of contemporary history seemed to me to indicate how dangerously near the savage state that man lacking that humility may be, that savage state, how near we may be, even while he is most advanced materially and technologically. And so his moment comes. And he says of that aha moment one Sunday in New York City, my wife again asked me to accompany her to church. She said the preaching would be excellent because this guy was really fine. And he said, I was then at the crossroads and I went. She took me to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church to hear Dr. David Reed. I returned again and again to that church. I returned also to a study of the awe-inspiring simplicity and beauty of the teachings of Jesus. The scales began to fall from my eyes. I found, as though I had never read of him before, 
that no one ever spoke like Jesus. He spoke of God the Father as one who knew Him and was identified with Him. It was astounding, he said, that God, as Jesus revealed Him, is so different from what men had thought Him to be. And so he concludes this story of his aha moment and simply says, looking back on my life, I know that for 30 years I lived in this world like an orphan. I am an orphan no longer. But now, see, where I had been drifting, I have arrived. The Sunday morning when I rejoined the Christian church was a homecoming. Lin Yu Tang. The aha moment. The aha moment that we pray for others and pray for ourselves. The aha moment that opens us up to more and new and deeper aha moments of uncovering and discovering the reality of the person of Jesus as Savior and then as Lord, the enabling power of His Holy Spirit. And behind all that, the love of a loving Father God. Aha. In this sermon series, as we consider in the next few weeks the implications beyond the aha moments, Here's an assignment for you, twofold. One is in your, we just simply have some complimentary material to engage Ephesians at home as well as here. It's not meant necessarily to be parallel to the sermon, but just to continue to expose us to Ephesians. And I offer you this as an assignment as well. How about when you sit across the table, perhaps at lunch today or later in the week, with spouse or family member or friend, What if you share one of your aha moments with one another? Share that moment and that event that brought you closer to God. Like C.S. Lewis. Like Lin Yutang. Like the people of the blessed eyes. Blessed are the eyes that see what you have seen. Blessed are the feet that walk the ways where you have been. Hallelujah to aha moments. Amen.